0: Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Good morning, church. Um, Such a privilege to be here with you this morning, and... um, I think one of the benefits of being away for four years and uh, not singing any English worship songs is that you get back and there's new songs to sing and uh, wow, thank you for those for those songs so, so good. Jesus be my vision that 's so in line with what we are with what we 're going to be looking at this morning and uh, I invite you please to take your Bible and uh, turn to the uh, Old Testament. Prophet Isaiah chapter 6. Um, on Friday night, those who were here, we opened up uh, Jeremiah and we uh, looked at uh, the life of the prophet Jeremiah and learned, learned a number of good things from, from him. And uh, this morning, here, yeah, Sunday morning, I'd like us to look at Isaiah um, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is the Word of God. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. As I was preparing for today's message, I thought that it is pretty significant, it's quite something that when we begin to think about the needs of a wayward world, and how we can address those needs, we do so with our Bibles open. And the church really is unique in this. The main problem in the world is not a political problem or a financial problem or a technological problem. But the main problem in the world is the problem of sin which this book addresses. Don't think that it takes a lot of convincing to, to, to help you understand that we live in a world that is in a mess, spiritually, morally in a crisis. We live in a world that is a wayward world But it's not unlike the world that the prophet Isaiah lived in. Prophet Isaiah was a preacher. He preached the word of God. And he was God's worker amongst a wayward people. If you read chapters 1 to 5, it describes how God's people have epically failed, both morally and spiritually. In chapter 5, There's a number of woes or curses that are pronounced upon them. And when you put them together, it gives us a very grim picture. Describes a people who are materialistic and overindulgent and defiant and morally perverse and arrogant and corrupt. We put that all together. What do we have? We have the wayward world was the world that Isaiah lived in, and it is the world that we unfortunately live in today. But then we get to chapter 6, and in the midst of all of this sinfulness and, and spiritual darkness, chapter 6 comes onto the scene, and it displays for us the thing that we need more than anything else in the world, the thing that the wayward world needs more than anything else is a true glimpse of the one true and living God and His awakening power and His marvelous grace. Now, some people would summarize the opening verses of chapter 6 as Isaiah's call, the climax in that very well-known verse verse, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. It's indeed a wonderful verse, challenges us towards missions, and I pray that that would be our hearts this morning, that when we hear the call of God upon our lives, we would also say, Here I am, Lord, send me. But I don't believe that's the main key verse in this text. I don't think that this passage is primarily about the obedience of Isaiah. I think the main point of this passage is for us to see God. And you cannot say, here I am, send me, if you don't know God. A church at work in a wayward world cannot have success if they don't know God. Everything we do as a church, I mean everything we do as a church, everything we do as Christians is directly related to how we view God. And so that's why I believe we've been led to come to this passage to study this passage together so that we too can see the Lord for who He truly is. And as we do that, my prayer is that our hearts would melt and that our sometimes all too selfish aspirations will fade away and that we also, like Isaiah, will answer God with those words, Here I am. Send me. So let's jump into the passage. Verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It's a really interesting arrangement of words here because it helps us to see that God is alive. The king is dead, yet God is not. He's alive. Many kings and kingdoms in all their splendor, all their power, they have come and they have gone. Those that are in power now, one day they will no longer be, but God remains alive. Think about this. Within 120 years, every single one of earth's nearly 8 billion people will be replaced by new people. Even my little son, 10 months old, with 120 years, he will no longer be there. But God will still be alive. We all have an expiry date. There's no earthly king whose reign does not come to an end. But God is ever living, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. He is and he forever will be the living God. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And so we see here, not only is God alive, we see that God also rules. Heaven has an occupied throne. The core belief of atheism or materialism is that there's no throne, there's no authority to answer to. The core belief in humanism is that there is a throne, but guess who sits on the throne? It's man. But the Bible is very clear. There is a throne, and it's not occupied by any man. It's occupied by the Lord God. And he sits upon his throne. He's not in a panic. He's not in a daze. There's a Japanese word I really like. It's called batabatasuru. It's like you you're like fidgety in, in a daze. Bata bata suru. And God is not doing that. He's sitting on the throne. And contrast that with what's happening on the earth. People are in a panic because their king has died. He had been reigning for 52 years. He was a good king. And so what's going to happen to us now? The future is so unknown. The nation is in a crisis. The enemies are getting stronger and stronger. Where is God? Exactly where He has always been and exactly where He will always be, seated on His throne. For kinship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations Psalm 22:28 I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up So not only is God alive not only does he rule but he rules without any competition For His throne is high and lifted up. He has no equal. He's not an authority among authorities. He is the authority. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Deuteronomy 10.17. And so when you travel to other countries, and you see people bowing down to other gods like we do see regularly in japan those countries are not territories that belong to another because there is not a centimeter of space centimeter of space in the universe that does not belong to god and so when we speak about countries that they only have 1% of the population are Christian. Don't think that that means 99% are under the authority of some other God who rules over them. That's, that's not the case. God rules over everything without competition because his throne is high and lifted up. None of us give gives authority to God. He has it. He has authority in your life. Whether you like it or not, it's just how do you respond? Will you defy Him or will you embrace His authority with joy? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And so Isaiah's vision, we see God is alive, we see He rules, we see He rules without any competition, and now we see that He is also majestic. Isaiah describes God as wearing a robe with a train that fills the entire temple. Just imagine that, seeing this vision of God, in His robe, His train just everywhere, everywhere. What do we make of this? It's a very strange kind of picture, right? Well, we all know that what you wear says a lot about who you are. Some are wearing some traditional garb. I asked Tolamo if I can borrow his blanket because I'm getting cold, but he said no. <laughs> uh, it tells you something about who you are, your, your identity, your culture, where you, where you come from. It shows something about your wealth, about your occupation. What we wear says something about us. And so that's why kings and queens and royalty would wear these gowns with expensive material. And the more material you use, the more people think that you're really wealthy and really powerful. And so that's what kings would wear. Even in Japan, in the uh, ro- royal people would have gowns with trains that, that, f- that just stretches out, magnificent to look at. And so then we see Isaiah describing God wearing a robe with the train. It not only fills a small space, doesn't only fill the aisle, but it fills the entire temple. And so it describes that this God is a God of beauty and glory and majesty such as no one has ever seen before, that He is a God of dazzling beauty. We carry on verse 2. It says that above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two. He covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so inside the throne room, Isaiah describes these angelic beings called seraphim. And in the original language, the word seraphim means burning ones. It's very unfortunate that our modern image of of angels is usually this little putty baby thing with like some wings floating around and uh, sprinkling glitter on people. That's not the image that Isaiah saw. These seraphim are immensely powerful beings because you see later that when they spoke, the foundations of the temple shook. And so these seraphim are living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. And these powerful beings fly around the throne room. And when we look at John's revelation, when he, John sees the throne of, 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 of God, he says that there's thousands, myriads, thousands upon thousands of these angelic beings flying around the throne of God. And it says that they can't even look upon the glory of God. They have to cover their faces. They have to cover their feet because of their shame and their unworthiness of being in the presence of such an awesome God. And then we get to verse 3. It tells us what these angels are constantly calling out to one another. Read it with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Exclamation mark. Don't forget that. Back and forth, back and forth. These seraphim, they delight themselves in in God for His infinite holiness, for His all-encompassing glory. They cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy. The only time in the Bible where one of God's attributes is repeated three times, and it's not just for simple repetition. It's for emphasis. That it is perfection, times perfection, times perfection. That He is holier than the holiest of the holy. Holy. His holiness is full of splendor, Psalm twenty-nine, two. It is majestic, Exodus 15.11. It is incomparable, Isaiah 40.25. All of that to say that God is in a category of His own. And these angels are straining at the very edge of what you are able to do with human words, saying that He is set apart, He is unique, He is special. Only God is. Only God alone is God. And as those words describing God as thundered through the air around the throne room, the very foundations begin to shake, and the house is filled with smoke. When I read that, I think of our experience in Japan of um, earthquakes. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced an earthquake, but it is a really scary thing. When we were in our apartment, it felt like we were on a boat as, as the, the building moved and the ground beneath you was shaking. It's a really terrifying feeling. And uh, you just feel so totally powerless. You feel so afraid, incapable of doing anything to save yourself. And so imagine what Isaiah was feeling at this point seeing God and His glory, seeing these powerful beings, and then the ground beginning to shake and the place is filled with smoke. Try and imagine, what would you do if that was you? If you were confronted by the living God, how would you respond? Well, let's read Isaiah's response. Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So an awareness is forming in his mind. He realizes that I am a sinful person. He realizes his utter depravity and he's not giving any excuses here. He's not complaining. He's not listing a list of good deeds. He doesn't say, God, I'm at least a little bit better than that guy. None of that. He realizes that he was a sinner and that he was done for because of that. Literally, he was saying, I'm toast. That's what he was thinking. In the original language, it literally means he was saying, I am disintegrating like an ice block melting. That's how he was feeling. An ice block in the middle of a blazing sun. And this is the normal response when sinners come before a holy God. In Luke 5.8, Peter told Jesus, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Revelation 1.17, John wrote, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. In Job 42.5, Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's no other fitting response for sinners like us because before this God, none of us can stand. We're all guilty. And so we are all completely at His mercy when we stand before Him. And so how would God respond to Isaiah? Isaiah cries out, I'm toast. What does God do? And friends, this is where we get to the good news. Because Isaiah believes he's done for, but God is not yet done. Verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And so when Isaiah confesses his sinned before a holy God, he does not experience an act of punishment from God, but he experiences an act of grace. In the strange but graphic display, a call from the altar is placed on his lips, the very thing that, that earlier Isaiah said was unclean. And the symbolic gesture is explained. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. God was saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, I forgive you. I've made you clean. I'm not going to extract punishment for sin from you. Your sin will no longer separate you from me. And so the stunning event tells us something very important about the heart of God. He's a God who is kind. He is a God who forgives sin. He is a God who makes the unclean clean. When I was still pastor here at Central, there was a young Asian man that I invited to come to a church service here at Arcadia. And he came. And I remember I, I met him at the foyer, and he got to those big doors, and just, he just couldn't come inside. He just froze. And, um, oh, sorry. He just, he just froze. And uh, I went to him and said, hey, why, why don't you come in? What's wrong? And he said, I can't come in. I just, he, just couldn't get it. he just couldn't get himself to come inside here. And I asked him, what's wrong? What's, what's going on? And he said, I can't come in because I have an impure heart. And I remember how much gladness it brought me to tell him that Jesus knows just what to do with that unclean heart and that Jesus is so glad that you are here. Because this symbolic gesture of the burning coal purifying Isaiah's lips points us to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus went to the place of sacrifice, that it is His dying love that awakens dead people to God. Later on in the book of Isaiah, the prophet would speak of this coming salvation, Isaiah 53 verse 5 But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So we know that Isaiah here, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, he's speaking about Jesus. In fact, Isaiah speaks so much about Jesus and the coming hope of the Messiah that the book of Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, But then some would say even Isaiah should be categorized as a gospel because it speaks so much about Jesus. In fact, a pastor friend of mine uh, showed me this really cool passage in John chapter 12, which I think you're going to like. I want to share it with you. If you want to turn to John chapter 12, you're welcome to, but we're not going to unpack the whole passage. But uh, basically in John chapter 12, John refers to a prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah. And then he links that prophecy in Isaiah directly to the ministry of Jesus. And then at the end it says this in verse 41, chapter 12, John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, meaning he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. So now let's take that knowledge back to Isaiah 6 and that amazing description of God on the throne that's high and lifted up. That person is none other than Jesus. And let's go one step further. Let's take the knowledge we have from Isaiah 6 and John 12 and let's walk that over to Philippians 2 verse 5 where it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be gross, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus stood up from the throne that is above all thrones, the throne that is high and lifted up, he stepped off of that throne, and He came down to earth to be born in a stable. He walked the dust of earth. The one who in Isaiah 6 is served by thousands upon thousands of angels becomes a servant. The one who wore a royal gown with the train that filled the temple that royal gown was stripped off and he hung naked on a cross to die in a public display of humiliation. The one who is worshipped as holy, holy, holy became sin for us so that in him we can become righteous. That's who Jesus is. During Isaiah's special vision of God in the throne room, he experienced both the magnificent glory of God and His incomparable kindness. This is the God we sing to. This is the God we pray to. But that's not the end of the story. We get to verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And from what we read before in Isaiah 6, it seems to be the most natural response, doesn't it? I mean, who would not want to go and speak of this God? It's no different with us, I believe, when we have an accurate understanding of God's greatness and with that uh, accurate understanding of His heart, one that is full of mercy and kindness, it naturally leads to a desire to serve Him out of delight, not out of duty. And so what does it mean to be a working church in a wayward world? I think it simply means that we know God and we make Him known. Make known the greatness and the mercy of God to people who do not yet know. Because listen, there's only one reason why the world is in a mess. It's because people do not truly know God. And that's the reason why we send out missionaries. That's the reason why we have missions conferences. That's the reason why we do Awana on Fridays. Why we do Sunday school kids ministry, youth ministry. That's the reason we pray for the lost. That's the reason why we give money towards missions work. It's because we know God. We know He is a great God. We know He is a merciful God who should and deserves to be known not just by us, not just by us, but by all people. We who, like Isaiah, have tasted, we who have seen the Lord is good through eyes of faith, those of us who have had our hearts awakened. Our hearts ache at the thought that there are still people who have not yet tasted. That drives the mission's engine of the church. We want the world to know this awesome God that we know. And so as I bring this message to a close, I want to start off by asking one question that's a really important question, and that's simply... Do you know God? Do you really know God? Do you know that He is high and lifted up? Do you know that He is holy, holy, holy? Do you know that He is also so, so kind towards you that in order to save you from sin, He paid the ultimate price. He shed His blood on the cross, claimed victory over death through His resurrection on the third day. Do you know Him? And if you don't know Him, I want to encourage you by saying that God's heart is for you to know Him. God wants you to know Him. He's given you His Word. This passage we read in Isaiah is preserved for you so that you can know Him. The gift of prayer has been given to you so that you can speak to Him. He has given us His Spirit to be with us, to be in us. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to continue in life not knowing God. You don't have to be, continue in life being confused and forsaken and alone and in your sin. You can know God if you would only pray to Him today. Ask Him to teach you of His greatness and His mercy. He truly is a great God. And for those of you who do know Him, does your heart not ache for those who don't know Him? Does your heart not ache when you hear about the Sheikh people of Bangladesh, 135 million people, hardly any of them know that God is great and merciful? The Japanese people where we serve 120 million people, very few of them follow Christ. Very few of them have ever known, ever heard about Him. Pastor Mark made a small little mistake, said millions instead of billions. Millions is enough for us to be concerned Billions of people who do not know God. Does your heart not ache at the sound of those numbers? So what do we do when we feel so overwhelmed, when we feel so inadequate, when the sins of the wayward world around us seem so grievous, when the unfinished task seems impossible to complete? What do we need to do? In these days, what we need more than anything else, friends, is a fresh glimpse of God. Seated on his throne, high and lifted up, full of mercy, ready to forgive. That has been my anchor. Being a missionary in Japan for four years, that has been my anchor. Last year, I experienced a very low point. In my life as a missionary. I was feeling very discouraged. I I had doubts about whether I should go back to Japan. I was dwelling on my weaknesses. I was dwelling on my failures, dwelling on my own inadequacies. I had thoughts like maybe maybe I'm just not cut out to do this. But thankfully God was at work in my heart. Reading through Jeremiah which is what I spoke about a little bit on, on Friday night. Reading through Isaiah God worked in, in me and helped me to see that I shouldn't look to myself, but I should look to Him. And we should, as a church, that's what I want to encourage us with this morning, we should con- constantly, continually look to God. See God, His glory, His kindness afresh. And as we do that, we cry out together, for the nations who do not yet know Him. And as we see God, how great He is, how merciful He is, and we hear the call upon our lives to go, we would raise our hands without hesitation and say, Yes, here I am, Lord, send me. Send me into my school. Send me into my university. Send me into my workplace. Send me into my retirement village. Send me to the nations. Send me to those who do not yet know you. Send me as a prayer warrior, as a supporter and encourager of those who go. Because I have seen you through eyes of faith, God, use me for the cause of the gospel, going out to the nations May it be a joyful thing for us to respond. Lastly, I just want to read two verses from the great hymn, O for a Thousand Tongues. O for a Thousand Tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors of your name. May that be our heart's cry this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we could spend looking at you through the scriptures, through eyes of faith, eyes opened by your spirit to help us see you, see who you truly are, high and lifted up, yet at the same time, humble, gracious, kind. When we look to ourselves, when we look to the wayward world around us, we get so discouraged. The task seems so difficult And so, therefore, help us to look to you, and as we look to you, may our hearts overflow, God, with the desire to make you known to those who do not yet know you. May our hearts cry out, God, with yours, for the nations who are still strangers to grace. God, may we too raise our hands and say, here I am, Lord, send me, not out of obligation or guilt, but out of joy out of joy, because how can we not speak? How can we not give? How can we not pray when we have experienced such kindness and seen such great truth? And so, Holy Spirit, come into our hearts and do the work that only you can do today, and that is make us more like Christ to be obedient to your call upon our lives in Jesus name we ask amen thank you for listening to this sermon find out more about central baptist church at www.central.org.za